Well, thank you for the introduction. It's, it's an honor uh, to be here at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, and uh, the story I prepared for you today um, is a story entitled uh, The Pinkster King and the King of Congo. It's a story based on, on the book I recently uh, published. And it's a story that I start with a person you all know, uh, Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth, you all know her as, as an icon of black liberation movement, but also as an icon of, of evangelicalism. Um, but what perhaps many of you do not know is that Sojourner Truth's um, native language was Dutch. And that shouldn't be a surprise to you if you know where she grew up. Um, Sojourner Truth uh, grew up um, in the Hudson Valley uh, near Albany. And uh, she grew up at a time when in that part of, of the state of New York, um, still uh, many descendants of the 17th century Dutch colony of New Netherland uh, lived. Um, uh, as you all know, New York uh, has a Dutch history. It once upon a time used to be New Amsterdam. Um, and when the English took over, um, the original population decided to remain. Uh, they remained, but um, Manhattan itself, which used to be the center of Dutch power, became increasingly um, English. And as a result, um, Dutch families would leave Manhattan um, move towards the Hudson Valley, uh, and for several generations uh, in and around the city of Albany, you would still have many places where um, essentially Dutch 17th century culture survived, also in terms of language. You had slaves who grew up with those families for several generations, hence um, slaves such as uh, Sojourner Truth would speak Dutch as their native language. And we estimate that still by the mid-18th century, about 15% of all the slaves living in the states of New York and New Jersey spoke Dutch. And that's something that very few people are actually aware of. Um, now, why do I start with Sojourner Truth? Because um, I start with her. She has a very interesting passage in her famous narrative. And that passage relates to um, a moment in her life, uh, briefly after she um, walks away from her former slave master. Essentially what had happened is the following. She was a slave. Um, everybody knew that slavery was about to come to an end. And it was very common at that time that masters and slaves would make a deal. And that deal essentially was, you will work hard for me for a number of years. They would set that number. And after that year, the last year is over, I will give you freedom. Yeah. So the deal was made with Sojourner Truth and her master. She would work for five more years, and then she would become free. What happens is that during those five years, she gets injured, and she can't work as hard anymore. And after the fifth year passed, her master says, no, but because of your injury, you didn't work really hard. You have to remain a slave longer than I told you five years ago. She um, disagrees, and she walks away. And she walks away from him, and then she lives with um, a Dutch-American family, the von Wagener family. But at one moment, uh, she makes a very interesting observation uh, in her narrative. What she does is she starts to become nostalgic. Nostalgic about the old days when she was still living with the other slaves. And the reason why she becomes nostalgic is the upcoming Pinkster celebration. Um, and I will show you the passage. And I asked my colleague, Catherine, if you would be so nice to read 
some of the uh, quotes that I present to you today. Catherine. It's quite a remarkable, a remarkable passage, right? And it shows to us also the, the importance of this annual Pinkster celebration to the slave community living here um, in New Jersey and in uh, the state of New York. What makes it interesting is that it was a celebration that only occurred among the Dutch-owned slaves. Um, and that's also the reason, I think, why we have so little information about that celebration. Uh, the Dutch themselves, do not write about it. There's no Dutch newspapers at that time. Um, English newspapers have little interest because they don't really understand what's going on. Uh, so the few, the few sources we have about this Pinkster celebration come from outsiders. Outsiders such as Alexander Coventry um, from Scotland who travels through um, um, this part of the country. He observes the festival and he makes a reference to it. And Catherine, if you could read. <coughs> yeah, so the importance I, I here is, is to realize for us that this is not just a Dutch celebration. It's a biracial celebration that included also the slave um, community. We have a much longer and a much more interesting reference to it um, from an, an unidentified source from the year 1803 that explains to us how Pinkster was celebrated in the city of Albany, which really used to be kind of the, the last bulwark of, of Dutch identity um, in, in America. And it reveals to us that by that time, it had become almost an exclusively African-American celebration. Um, it was huge. It attracted up to a thousand visitors. So it was the largest African-American celebration in, in, in Northern America at that time. Um, it was organized by the slave community itself, and he highlights two things. He highlights that the African-American community would have a procession during that celebration, and the procession they organized was in honor of their king. Yeah. So let me, show you, let me show you the quote. Catherine. So quite, quite astonishing, right? What, what is this all about, this Pinkster um, celebration? We have some more information about it. We have uh, quite an interesting poem dedicated um, to this Pinkster king. Uh, we also know that in the year 1811, 
the city authorities in Albany prohibit um, the celebration. Um, we do know that the celebration um, survives for a couple of decades in the surrounding area, uh, but eventually it disappears around 1850. And surprisingly, it disappears without any signs of major resistance uh, by the African-American community. Um, all we have after that is a couple of memories, people recalling that in the old days there was this Pinkster celebration. And I will have two quotes um, about this. And, and what is interesting about these two quotes is that they both make a connection between the African-American Pinkster celebration and Central Africa. And I will get back to that later in my presentation, Catherine. So Angola and Congo, yeah, and I'll, I'll get back to those places in a minute. Just one last reference to memories. Um, the most famous passage about the Pinkster celebration can be found in the work of, of the famous author uh, Cooper, uh, his novel Satan's Toe. Now, what is going on here? Right? Um, I'm obviously not the first person who writes about this tradition. Others have written about it, perhaps most famously a historian called Shane White. Uh, who essentially perceives and interprets uh, the tradition as a type of carnival, a tradition that mixed some Dutch and, and indigenous African elements, and he then compares it to carnival and explains it as, as a type of uh, reversal of social order, uh, whereby those who are kings, or those who are slaves, for one day become the king, and then after the celebration is over, everything goes back to normal. Yeah? Um, just summarizing his, his theory, Catherine. Uh, Yeah, so that's, that's his interpretation. And, and I'm very skeptical uh, about his interpretation. I will try to explain to you later where that skepticism uh, comes from. But let us first have a look then at uh, the Dutch element. Because um, pinkster indeed is, is a Dutch word. Uh, it's a Dutch word and it means um, Pentecost. Yeah, it means Pentecost uh, with suntide. Uh, usually when I give these presentations, I have to explain what with Scientide is, but I don't think that I need to do this here at this institution. Uh, but what maybe I do need to do is to explain to you that many of the uh, Pentecost traditions in, in the Dutch Republic have very old roots, um, because they built on pre-Christian celeb celebrations. Yeah? Uh, celebrations that related to um, the arrival of the summer, and therefore, not surprisingly, many of these celebrations will have allusions to fertility symbols. Um, most famously, what you would see happening during the Pinkster celebration was that um, in, in villages, people would select uh, the prettiest young girl of the village. And that young girl would then be decorated with flowers and she would be paraded through town. Um, and that looked more or less like this. Yeah. And, they, and she would be called the Pinkster Blumetier, uh, so the Pinkster flower. Yeah. Um, then Christianity arrives and, and, and missionaries, the first missionaries arriving in that part of Europe um, feel how important these celebrations are 
to the population, and they decide not to, not to destroy the tradition, but to reinterpret it. Yeah? So what used to be essentially a pagan tradition now is perceived as a tradition in honor of the Virgin Mary. And that's why you have the flowers, and then it becomes the, lady, the girl, right? a celebration in honor of, of the Virgin Mary. Um, also important is that many Dutch uh, churches at that time are established on the day of Pentecost. Um, Pentecost, as you know, you know is, is essentially the history of the beginning of the Christian church, right? So it's not by accident that uh, churches are established uh, on the day of Pentecost. And uh, typical for that time is that you have a type of celebration coinciding with the inauguration of the church. Yeah? And that celebration, the name of that celebration, some of you might be familiar with, is the word kerkmis. Uh, it's an originally Dutch term, uh, kerk meaning church, mis meaning uh, church service. Um, but to many people nowadays, Kerkmis is essentially a synonym for a celebration, a fair, a popular feast, so to speak. Right? Uh, where you then would have those, those pagan traditions being mixed with certain uh, Christian uh, elements, uh, which becomes a problem once the Reformation arrives. And the Reformation arrives and the Reformation is of course not happy about the recycling of pagan elements. Yeah. So you see a strong resistance uh, from within the Re Reformation against these pinkster celebrations, an attempt even to prohibit and destroy uh, the celebrations, uh, because they perceive it as a typically Catholic thing, right? that, that instead of, of enlightening people and teaching them not, no longer to honor these pagan traditions, what do Catholics do? They just continue it and, and they put like a, like a Christian sauce over it and say, no, it's in in honor of the Virgin Mary. Right? So they try to uh, prohibit uh, the celebration, but they fail. They fail, and the result is that what you see in the Dutch Republic is that Pentecost becomes essentially a time when the community is divided. It's divided within those who follow the Dutch Reformed Church and its rejection, and you have others who do not. And among those others, there's of course those who remain Catholic, because we shouldn't forget that, that in the 17th century Netherlands, about a third of the population did not become Protestant. They remained Catholic. But you also have many members of, of the Dutch Reformed Church who perceive themselves as what the Dutch call liefhebbers. And liefhebbers means essentially sympathizers. Uh, it means that you're linked to the church, but you have, you have some leeway. Yeah? And that leeway allows you to still engage in certain popular celebrations. Um, in any case, what is important to us is that the community becomes divided, right? Some still celebrate uh, uh, Pentecost, uh, and others are strongly against it. Yeah? Uh, we do know also that the celebration is brought by the Dutch to America. Uh, we have evidence that the Pinkster celebration uh, existed on 17th century Manhattan, um, and there's actually some traces uh, still existing today here in this part of the country. Uh, for those of you who like gardening, uh, the word pinkster and pinkster flower uh, still survives in the word pinkster bloemetje, uh, which some people use, which essentially is a corruption of the Dutch pinkster bloemetje uh, for this type of pink flower. Um, now, what makes me uh, skeptical about the interpretation that Professor White uh, presents is that I see a problem here in explaining how a tradition that starts with a young girl decorated with flowers somehow transforms into a celebration whereby you honor an older man 
dressed as a king. Those are, to me, two very different types of toleration, and I don't really see how you, you know, evolve from one to the other. Um, another problem I have is that when we speak about carnival, uh, we all think about mockery, about irony, and you don't really see that here. On the contrary, what you see is that the African-American population had a tremendous amount of respect for this person who had been elected as king. And that makes me uh, suspicious in the sense that I think there's much more going on here than just a carnival. Um, but what then could be an alternative explanation? And the alternative explanation I came up with is that I decided to put tradition in a broader Atlantic context and to look for other traces of African-Americans electing and celebrating their king. And I found actually lots of traces. Um, and let me show you a couple. And we first have a look at uh, Jamaica. Um, Catherine, if you could read for me. Let me show you an example from the Guianas. Yeah. And the last example I want to give to you comes from, the, from North America, uh, from uh, New Orleans. Yeah. And what this shows to me is that what's going on in Albany is not really you know, a uniquely New York thing. It's actually something that you see also happening in other parts um, uh, in the Americas. Um, also intriguing is that I found evidence that um, the election and celebration and honoring of a king was not something that was reduced to that one day of Pentecost. Because um, we find also other references to members of the African-American community um, showing tribute to a person they had elected as their king. Um, Catherine? Kingston, by the way, Kingston, New York. Where do all these kings come from? Um, and here, um, I would suggest that we temporarily leave um, North America and we move to the Iberian Peninsula. And I will explain to you later why I'm making that connection. Um, there's very little research on slave kings in, an, in, in a North American tradition, but there's quite some research on it in uh, a Latin American and, and Iberian uh, tradition because it's a very old, uh, there is a very old um, tradition in the Iberian world uh, where uh, you see um, that elections of kings is a tradition that occurred in so-called brotherhoods, brotherhoods or fraternities. Um, essentially, mutual aid associations um, that were linked to the church, uh, that had a patron, 
Um, that could be the Virgin Mary, it could be a saint, um, but it was tremendously popular um, and important um, in the early modern uh, Iberian world, and you had all kinds of brotherhoods. You had brotherhoods even for the beggars had their own brotherhood, the blinds had their own brotherhood, um, and also the slaves. Yeah? So you had these so-called black brotherhoods. Black brotherhoods that were very important to the slave community in the Iberian world. Um, they were dedicated, almost all of them, to uh, Our Lady of the Rosary, uh, who was considered the brotherhood for the poorest of the poor, hence for the slave uh, community. Um, it was a very hierarchical system, so you had a king, right? But at the same time, and this, this I find very interesting, it was also very democratic, in the sense that the members of the brotherhoods could elect who was to become the king. And not just the king, but a series of leadership positions that all had aristocratic names. So uh, members of the slave community would elect who was to become their duke, their count, their captain, their queen, and the leader would then be the king. What you see happening in those brotherhoods is um, a very interesting um, 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 mixture of indigenous African elements with Iberian Catholic elements. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, um, um, praying the rosary yeah, was very important to those brotherhoods, but praying the rosary would occur um, with uh, African music being played and drums being played. And, and so you, you would have the beginning of what was to be uh, later in history uh, call and response music. Uh, the same would happen during burials. You had a Catholic burial, but uh, there, was, there was a procession uh, with uh, African music that would accompany the burial. Um, 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 you had processions, a very important uh, epiphany, of course, because in epiphany you need a king, right? And then the, a black king, right? So the king of the brotherhood then became the black king. Uh, very important, obviously, we're speaking about uh, the Iberian Peninsula, Corpus Christi. A very important holiday, uh, and also, especially in the case of Portugal, Pentecost. Pentecost was, was an extremely important uh, uh, annual celebration. If you would go uh, nowadays, for instance, to the Azores Islands, still today, the biggest annual celebration is, is Pentecost. And they don't call it Pentecost, they call it the Feast of the Divine, uh, the Divine um, um, Spiritu Santo, so the, the, the Holy Spirit, and the Divine Holy Spirit. Um, now, why are these brotherhoods so important? They are so important in, for two reasons, I think. One is that you can preserve some of your African-American uh, heritage. Uh, secondly, because those, mutual, uh, those, 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 those brotherhoods give you a, a possibility to organize mutual aid and solidarity among each other. Yeah. And that, that's, I think, the, the real power and, uh, of, those, of those brotherhoods. Now, what is important is that at a very early stage, we see that the Portuguese export these brotherhoods to Africa. Uh, the first reference we find to it, the first black brotherhood in Africa, dates back to 1495. So already in late 15th century, late Middle Ages, essentially, early modern, uh, on the Cape Verde Islands. Uh, we later beginning of the 16th century, we find the same brotherhoods on the island of San Tomé, um, and uh, eventually uh, also in uh, the famous uh, Kingdom of Congo. And uh, the Kingdom of Congo, where we know 
uh, from a letter uh, written by the representative of the, of the Congo kings in Portugal, um, that uh, the ambassador uh, in Portugal representing the Congo kingdom writes in his letter that already in the early 16th century, uh, in, the, in the capital of the kingdom of Congo, there were already seven Catholic brotherhoods. And they were extremely prestigious. Yeah? And to be a member of the brotherhood meant a lot to people. Yeah? Um, we later also find references in Portuguese Angola. Um, then those brotherhoods um, uh, pass on to the Americas. And we find them uh, pretty much everywhere in Latin America, especially in the case of Brazil. Um, and where we see very similar rituals to the ones I, I mentioned to you, I'll give you two examples. I will give you an example from the Cape Verde Islands, and I will give you an example from, from Brazil, and you will see the similarities. Um, Catherine. That's Africa, right? That's the Cape Verde Islands. Um, let me show Brazil. Now, what is, what, is, what is amazing about the case of Brazil is that in some rural areas, you still find these fraternities today. Yeah, so, so many decades after abolition, you still find it. Yeah? And, and I think the reason you find it is essentially that for many uh, black people, even after abolition, mutual aid and mutual aid organized by people you can trust remained important. So those people still today, they have those ancient traditions that have their roots in Africa, were brought to Brazil, and somehow still survive today. And I will share a couple of examples with you. And since it still exists today, I'm, I'm able to share with you some video materials. We will see three scenes. The first scene is an altar. Um, it's, it's, an, it's essentially Afro-Catholic altar. Uh, the second scene is a celebration song in honor of the king of the fraternity. And the third scene is a procession, whereby you see how the king is paraded uh, through town. So let's have a look, and hopefully this will work. Oh, by the way, this is a, a painting, an 18th century painting, where you see such a procession. But now we'll see in the video.
Viva nosso amo Rosário. Viva o campo sagrado. Viva o posto que respeita o amo Rosário de Maria. Viva nosso rei. Viva o nosso capitão. Viva todo que aqui se encontra. This is the king procession. How do I make now a connection to New York, right? Because we have been speaking about Africa, we've been speaking about Brazil, how I make a connection to New York? And the connection I make is through the so-called charter generation, meaning the first generation of slaves. Um, and as we know, uh, as historians, that that generation often had a tremendous influence on how um, African-American identity would develop in certain parts, uh, because the first generation, in a way, set the model. Um, and when we look at the uh, first slaves living on Manhattan uh, during the Dutch era, we realize that those slaves were not um, brought to Manhattan um, in the context of a Dutch uh, slave trading operation whereby the Dutch had their own slave trading network yet. Uh, this was before the Dutch were able to develop their own slave trading network. So these are essentially people who are on Portuguese ships on their way to Brazil. Those ships are being attacked by the Dutch. The Dutch capture the slaves on those ships and then deviate those people to Manhattan yeah, and use them there as slaves. Yeah. Um, so let's have a look at, at uh, the origin of, of these people. Yeah. And luckily, thanks to their names, we're able to, to identify their origin. And let's have a look at, at their origin. What we see here is something quite remarkable, that the earliest slave community uh, in Manhattan yeah, is a community that almost exclusively originates from parts of Africa where you had a tremendously strong Portuguese influence. Yeah? We're speaking about Angola, Congo, uh, Cape Verde Islands, São Tomé. Remarkably, some of these people were actually born in Portugal. Uh, one was born in Spain, Others have been born in Latin America. Yeah, so quite remarkable when you look at the origin of the very earliest uh, slave community. And we're speaking now about the early 17th century. Right? Um, for those of you who, who know and are familiar with, with languages, uh, it will perhaps not come as a surprise to you that we also have evidence that some of these people spoke Portuguese. Um, and the reason why I say this is that some of you may be familiar with um, a Creole language called Papiamento. It's a language that is spoken today on the, the Dutch islands of Aruba and Curaçao. Um, and the slave community on those islands has essentially the same origin as the ones that once upon a time used to live on the island of Manhattan. So it's quite possible 
that in the early 17th century, um, the slave population on Manhattan would speak, would speak among themselves in a Portuguese Creole. Um, now, do we also have evidence that uh, besides their names um, and the language that those uh, Africans brought Afro-Christian traditions with them to the Americas? And that's, that's, of course, a much more difficult question because we have so little information about the slave community. Um, but we do have some information. We do know, for instance, that um, um, these people, when they had children, they were very eager to have their children baptized in the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, and the Dutch Reformed Church, um, um, at that time, there was definitely no um, Protestant supremacy yet. Right? It comes later, but at that time it was not there. And the church would welcome uh, these children. And one of the reasons, I think, that we need to stress is that they welcomed these children to the Dutch Reformed Church because they knew that the parents had been baptized. And they recognized that Catholic baptism as a Christian baptism. And that's, had they not been baptized, the Dutch Reformed Church would never have allowed those children um, to uh, the Dutch Reformed Church. But they did. They did, at least for a while. Um, because what happens is essentially what Catherine uh, has been telling us, what happens very quickly is that you see within the slave-owning um, community concerns. You know, what does that mean when this child is baptized? Will I still be able to sell this child when the child is old enough to work? Yeah. So owners become very concerned about the consequences of baptism. And it are the owners that are pushing the Dutch Reformed Church to become more strict. Yeah. They're forcing the church to become more strict. Yeah. And the result is that the church at one point says, well, um, this baptism, yeah, that's not a real baptism. That's only like a Catholic Portuguese thing. They just throw some water over their heads and it doesn't mean anything. Yeah? So they no longer recognize it as baptism. Yeah? Um, and that's the moment also they stop welcoming their children to the Dutch Reformed Church. Which means, of course, that some are admitted yeah? and some actually remain for generations uh, in the Dutch Reformed Church. So there was a, a black Protestant community on Manhattan in the early 17th century. Yeah? And, that, and, and people from that group would remain members of the Dutch Reformed Church for many generations. Yeah? But those were a small group. And the majority was not. And the majority essentially then had no other, no other choice but to develop its own mutual aid, its own solidarity among themselves. Which of course makes it likely um, that this mutual aid may I don't have evidence, but it may well have been organized in some type of fraternity, brotherhood type of organization, hence the election of kings. Yeah. Um, now, I do have some evidence from elsewhere. I do have some evidence that, in fact, um, um, slave communities originating from parts of Africa where the Portuguese influence was very strong, that they would on their own organize those types of brotherhoods. Um, and the example I bring is very familiar to Catherine as an example from the Danish Virgin Islands. Uh, if you could read it for me. Um, go ahead.
Yeah, let me just interrupt for one second. The Busal, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, a Busal is, is, a, is, an, is an enslaved African who has not yet been baptized. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially this this conclusion, right? The reference to, to burials, because that was, of course, the main the main task of these fraternities. Uh, the main task was essentially that um, uh, you would rely on the brotherhood for your for your burial, yeah. and and you would give every every month a little bit of your own money, even if you were extremely poor, and and you would you would give that to the brotherhood because the brotherhood would give you the promise that the day you die you will have a decent funeral, and that meant a lot. To me. um, now um, this quote I think might might somehow perhaps um, come as a surprise to some people, right, uh, who are not familiar with the fact that enslaved Africans would in fact bring some Christian elements already from Africa with them to the Americas, right, and that the history of Christianity, uh, of black Christianity, does not start in the Americas, it actually starts in Africa. Um, but for those of you who are familiar with African studies, it should not come as a surprise, right, and let me just um, show you this famous painting uh, where you will see uh, you know, um, um, Congolese leaders welcoming um, uh, Portuguese missionaries, um, um, but also some, some quotes from, from scholars um, indicating that uh, becoming a Christian meant a lot to these people. Um, um, and it even made them feel superior over, over others who had not become Christian. Um, and let me share this, those two quotes, Catherine. So, so becoming a Christian, right, made you really special. Um, um, and they come with this mindset to the Americas, right? And that, I think, explains a lot when it comes to the behavior and the reaction within the slave community to, to Christianity. Um, but um, uh, somehow, it seems to me, and maybe I should pause at, at this moment in my presentation and also raise that question, uh, you know, that, that when it comes to, to the popular perception of black Christianity in the United States, that's somehow not, not in people's awareness. Yeah? And, I, and I wonder why is that? That it's, that it's not a problem for people to accept that, that the enslaved, enslaved Africans brought um, to the Americas um, uh, their own interpretation of Islam. But why is it that there's so much resistance among people to accept that also many enslaved Africans brought to the Americas their own interpretation of Christianity? You know, and I wonder why, why that is, and maybe that's something in the Q&A we could, we could elaborate on for a second. Um, and I think that's also a question that, that is worth debating here in North America, because this is not just a question that applies to the Caribbean and to South America. And let me illustrate this to you with the case of South Carolina. Uh, South Carolina, where uh, we have the very interesting report of a missionary worker called Francis uh, Lugeau, Protestant, 
right? Um, comes to the slave community with the intention in 1710 to do missionary work, and then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, but they already know about Christianity. Yeah, um, Catherine? Yeah, they were already Christians, right? But they had the wrong Christianity. So, um, and then the other quote I think is very interesting because it, it shows to us that some type of, um, uh, well, no, um, sorry, Catherine, if you could read that one as well. Yeah, um, and what we also find is clear references that some type of brotherhood um, existed among those communities. Um, Catherine. Yeah. Um, and very interesting, we also have evidence that some slave communities uh, in South Carolina, especially on the Sea Islands that remained most isolated, that they would elect community leaders and they would call those community leaders their kings. Um, member of, of the black community who recalls, yeah, um, uh, still in, in the 1950s actually when he's interviewed, that in the old days there were community leaders and kings. Now that's of course South Carolina, right? Does that mean that the same must have happened uh, here in Manhattan and the surrounding area? We don't have proof, but we do have some evidence that also here in this part of the country there were slaves um, that did in fact bring some Christian elements with them. Um, to the Americas, Catherine. So now we're switching back to, to New York. Yeah, and mind you, this is, this is recorded at a time when Catholicism was prohibited in, in New York, right? Um, and, um, let me also briefly also remind you that Sojourner Truth herself, um, her real name was not Sojourner Truth. Her real name was Isabel. And Isabel is, is clearly not a, a Dutch Calvinist name. Isabel is, is really a, a Portuguese Catholic name. So that really proves to us that some, at least some Iberian, Afro-Iberian elements did survive within the descendants of, the, of, those, of those early slaves. Now I come to my conclusion, why did the tradition end? Um, we know, of course, about the prohibition in 1811. Uh, we see the decline elsewhere. Surprisingly, we don't see signs of protest. Um, my explanation that the Pinkster celebration gradually disappears is twofold. One reason I think clearly is abolition, because um, those, those fraternities and brotherhoods are perceived by the slave community here as something which is still relating to the times when there were slaves. And once abolition comes, they want something different. Uh, and they find something different, I think, also in the context of what we call the Second Great Awakening. Yeah? Great Awakening, which in, in my view, is not really an awakening, uh, because the foundations in, in many cases were already there. Uh, but in any case, we know the importance of the awakening, and we uh, find uh, then the development of the first black Protestant churches. Yeah? Uh, those Protestant churches, of course, come with, with a different mindset. Um, and, and one difference, of course, is that certain things that, that, that you were allowed to do in the old days when you celebrated Pinkster are no longer possible. For instance, 
uh, to drink excessively alcohol. It's no longer possible. Yeah? And also certain dances uh, become a problem. Uh, Catherine. Yeah, here you go, right? Uh, Pinkster becomes, becomes, of course, a problem. Yeah? Uh, and you clearly see that in, in also references uh, to early members of, of uh, black baptized Methodist churches, uh, where people recall the old days when Pinksters still existed, uh, but very negatively. Yeah? Also among African Americans themselves, yeah? who distanced themselves from the way celebrations used to be in the old days. Um, Catherine? Um, now I come to a conclusion, and, and my conclusion is that despite, of course, um, this, this, this transformation, despite this change, I do think that we should stress that, that the change does not mean that the African-American community would entirely draw its back towards what had happened in the past. I do see a transition of some of the former uh, elements to to the new Christianity that they embrace in the context of the Baptist and, and Methodist churches. Uh, elements such as, first of all, and the disagreement uh, with uh, what it means to be Christian, yeah? um, something which, which Catherine uh, already mentioned. And, and I think it's logical then you, that you see the development of black churches, right? uh, where, where um, African-Americans want to organize the church among themselves and I'm going to have their interpretation of what Christianity means to them, uh, which again, as I would argue, has a tradition. Yeah, it doesn't start um, um, uh, in the 19th century. Uh, secondly, uh, in those churches, you still see um, um, uh, clearly the importance of certain body movements, of music, the whole gospel tradition. Yeah, it's something which, which you can relate to what existed earlier. Uh, very important, I think, the emphasis on mutual aid uh, in the sense that, and I think we make a mistake when we speak about African-American Christianity and we only speak about faith. It was, of course, faith, but it was also, and very importantly, mutual aid, solidarity among each other. Yeah? Uh, the tradition of calling, calling uh, other members your sisters and your brothers. Yeah? That's really you know, at the core of what, what, what a mutual aid organization is all about. Um, lastly, and, and I'm really wildly speculating here, um, but maybe not without a reason, lastly I would mention uh, the importance of Pentecost to those African-American Christian churches. Yeah? Um, again, it might be just speculation, but it could well be that, that, that the importance of Pentecost is an importance that can be traced way back in history. Yeah? Um, let me end uh, my um, uh, presentation with the last words um, of my book. Uh, it's a final reflection, uh, and we will see Sojourner Truth coming back to us, uh, Sojourner Truth um, speaking to us, and Sojourner Truth highlighting the importance to her of a king, a wise king as your leader. And Catherine, if you could do that.
Thomas F. Hewer, Mr. King. Thank you all so much.